Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, thank you, and I'm really happy to be here celebrating Lucy's um, new novel. And um, I'm going to read a story that I think, that from Creature, I don't think I've ever read out loud before. Um, it's maybe slightly more autobiographical, I mean, not totally, um, than my other stories, so I think that's why I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm going to do it. So um, It's the first story in the collection, and it's called A Threadless Way. When I first moved here, I lived in a friend's room in a loft. I'd never lived in a loft before, and it was strange to do so in such a quiet place. Downtown was unlike any downtown I'd ever been in. Its emptiness surprised me, but it was empty only of certain kinds of people. They were around, but they lived on the sidewalk and in tents, and stores and businesses existed, but not the kind tourists want to shop at. The month, August, was hot, the way I like weather to be, and in the evenings when it cooled down, I rode my bike through the neighborhoods next to mine, and sometimes to a cornfield that someone had planted nearby. I would get off my bike and look at the plants, at the cobs of corn hidden in their pale green husks. I liked that the field was there, with the city's building so close to it. I liked that I was there. Across the street from where I lived was a school of architecture, and the huge dusty lot in front of the long building comforted me like the cornfield did. The building had once been a train station, and the friend whose room I was subletting had gone to this school. Even with all this comfort, though, I felt like a weird person. Sometimes in the loft, I could barely hold my head up as I talked to people. I couldn't look them in the eyes. I was happy and settled in my new life, but I was also limp and maybe still shell-shocked by the anxiety I had regularly felt before moving. The people who lived in the loft had been there for a while, and I was an outsider who had come to stay in the empty room. In the living room area, several aloe plants sat on the table in front of large windows overlooking the school, and a motorcycle was parked in the corner. There were also several desks scattered around. Once in a while, I sat at one of the desks to write, but mostly I worked in my bed. One night, a guy who lived in a tent several blocks away from the loft said to me, you don't look like a confident person. Was my lack of confidence apparent to people on the street? I didn't feel limp when I was alone, when I was walking around the city. I felt good then. Summer extended itself into September, and its sun was harsh and healing. Evenings were extremely pleasurable. It said you can't run away from your problems, and I knew that was true. I still had some problems, but others had completely disappeared. Some part of life was close to me, but another part was open. I had nothing to do, really, except go to yoga classes in the grocery store. Those things usually took a whole afternoon or evening, so in doing them, I felt I had been out around the city, had accomplished something, and I liked doing them. The yoga studio was small and clean, and in the bathroom, 
instead of disposable paper towels. Neatly folded washcloths were set out on a shelf. I had already lived an adult life in my old city. Why was I now living a life so different from the one before? In the loft, the walls didn't reach the ceiling, so I was never alone. One of my housemates also studied architecture at the school across the street, the way my friend had, but did most of her work from home. Her room was right next to mine, and I could hear her move around, even in her bed. Our other housemate left in the mornings and returned at night. When he was at home, he worked on drawings at one of the desks while wearing headphones. He also ate there and watched things on his computer. Sometimes I talked on the phone, knowing my housemates could hear what I said. I talked about a project I was helping to organize in my old city, and I talked about how life was going for me in the new one. I wanted to advertise to my housemates that I had lived in a place where I had had a job and also still had responsibilities, even if I had none where I was now living. During that time, I saw a movie about a woman who lived out of her car with her dog because she didn't have any money and then lost the dog while traveling through Oregon. When she lost her dog, I couldn't stop crying. I've always felt a lot for animals, but I also related to the woman who lived out of her car. I thought I might be like her. One day I drove to the middle of nowhere with my friend whose room I was living in. He was home on a visit from Dubai. Once we had been very close, but those days were gone. Still, we attempted to spend time together. The sun was unimaginably harsh. I drove while my friend slept in the car. When he woke up, we stopped and got out to climb some rock formations that looked like they were crumbling, even though they were stuck to each other. Together, the rocks formed a microclimate for plants that grew in the shade they made and for animals who could also survive there because of the shade. Short trees had sprouted up and delicate plants. Little squirrel moss animals scurried around, though they weren't quite squirrels or mice. We sat under the shade of one of the trees to watch them. We didn't let our arms or our legs touch. At night, the air turned from hot to warm, and then it got chilly. We don't know each other, I said. Yes, we do. We're more like brother and sister now. When we went down an elevation on the ride home, it got warm again. There was no water around, but I felt it, like we were descending into a large shallow sea. At home, I crawled into bed and read a story I had read many times before that I had taught in some of my classes. There was something in that story I wanted to sink into, the rich darkness of a barn, the putting the hand out into that darkness to see what it touched. I was no longer close to one friend, but I was becoming close to another. I thought about the second friend while pulling the covers over me. I lay all the way down, covering my head and face. You were a writer, I thought. Dante, someone yelled somewhere outside the building. Four flights up in the middle of a desolate downtown. That is where you are. I closed my eyes, but I didn't sleep. Instead, I saw darkness and then rock formations running into that darkness. What I didn't understand was how my friend and I could have become distant when we were probably more interesting people than we had been when we were close though I was weaker than I had been when we were close, and he was stronger. This probably had something to do with it. When I thought of the second friend, I felt comforted. The first time I felt this was when I had stopped by to visit him, and he was asleep. 
I knocked on his screen door, and he woke up to let me in. He wore a churidar and a pink shirt that was starting to tear on one of the shoulders. He got back into bed, and I sat in his desk chair next to him, and we talked about a book he was reading. I continued to wander around the city, absorbing something from it. I had very little money, but I've always identified with not having much, so it didn't bother me, except when I couldn't afford to make credit card payments. One evening, I rode my bike through a neighborhood where cheap clothes were sold. I bought myself a dress for $9.99. It was pretty, turquoise with small black polka dots all over it and sleeves that rose stiffly from my shoulders. I wore it to a museum where in one of the galleries, I saw four ornate wooden chairs facing a whipping post. Light shone on the chairs and on the post where the wood had splintered and turned old. On a gleaming table sat a pair of slave shackles surrounded by intricately carved silver vases. An artist had found these things in a historical society in Maryland and exhibited them there together. Now they were here. I touched my dress, its cheap material. What do you want from the city? My friend had asked me in the car on our way home. Nothing, just to live in it. That's not true. It is true. With no traffic on the freeway, my friend drove fast, much more so than I would have. What do you want from Dubai? I want what everything wants. Which is what, I asked. He never answered. When I left the museum, it was starting to rain, and a guy called me over to his tent. It was a simple triangle, like the one my parents and I had taken camping when I was young. What? I asked him. He shrugged. I'd like to invite you in. Why? You seem like a nice woman. I am. Your arm bends in a weird way, he said. I held my arms up in the rain. I know, it always has, both of them. Are you going to come in? No, you're lost. He unzipped the tent door and bent down to crawl inside. I could see part of a blue sleeping bag and a few magazines stacked on top of it. A lantern hung from the middle of the ceiling and the guy turned it on. Back at the loft, I stood looking out of the window at the school, its long shape extending into the darkness and my arms, my shoulders, and my dress. I made it look like my arm was as long as the school. Later, when I had lived here for a while, my second friend and I visited an orchid estate. It was finally cold outside, but the greenhouse was warm. Water droplets collected on the plastic covering and window panes. I walked around looking at the orchids, at their ways of being in air. Some of them seemed like they were holding it, like they were spoons or bowls. Some faced the air, slender prongs pointing up, slender fangs pointing down. Some pushed through or away, small strong flaps with light yellow ridges or dark red spots. I looked at the plants for a long time. Then I sat down in a chair and wrote my notebook. I noticed it become evening. When I finally saw my friend again, he was carrying two orchids. In the car, we situated the plants in the back seat so they wouldn't fall over and rolled the windows down so they would get some circulation. Can we drive by the university, I asked. I'd like to see what the campus looks like. Sure. We drove through the campus where the lights from the building shone out into the grass. The buildings were new with hardly anything to distinguish them from each other, except that some of them had more floors than the others. 
and in front of the library was a sculpture that looked like a coat hanger. A few students were sitting on it. I tried to imagine myself teaching there. That's enough, I said. I just wanted to have an idea so I could picture it in my head. It felt like something weird was going to happen, but nothing happened. I turned around and looked into the back seat. The orchids were upright. Everything was the same. I thought back to the period of time when it had taken me half an hour to eat a piece of toast. Back then, it had seemed as if I was living a life after it had already ended. Now, I could hardly take in enough. Thank you. Um, I mean, thank you for reading with me, and um, also um, thanks for for having me, uh, Skylight. I'm gonna read uh, maybe ten minutes um, from my novel, and um, I think I'm gonna read the slightly um, more shocking selection. Um, I myself was shocked to learn that this novel is shocking, but um, apparently it is. So that's fun for us. Um, I just have to find the page. This is on. So this is a novel about um, a young woman who is um, a curator in a large museum in Manhattan that's on Fifth Avenue, but this is not a real museum. This is a made-up museum. Um, and she comes to work one morning and something seems to have gone wrong, and that's basically the, the, the premise of the novel. Um, she's also married at the beginning of the novel, and the passage or the part that I'm gonna read is about her um, relationship with her husband, whose name is um, Whitaker, and also her relationship with one of her co-workers, whose name is Fred. And I don't think you need to know anything else right now. <clears throat> when Wit makes reference to her he is referring to a woman named Estelle Duzkin. And when I say he and I were married as children, I mean that I got married to him the summer when we were 25, two months before I started my doctorate. As is traditional in my family, this took place under the aegis, if not auspices, of Columbia University, where Witt and I had met as freshmen. And I was in love with Wit Jizcombe in a way that made me feel I was doing a logical thing. Because when you are in love with someone in this way, you are going to spend the rest of your life loving them, which proposition still holds some unfortunate veracity for me. 
Wit once prank phone called a professor I felt had slighted me during my orals and pretended to be a concerned museum-going dermatologist, detaining the scholar on the phone for two hours one night discussing the finer details of rosacea in Titian and the more general biology of blushing on and around the human ass. He picked me daisies from store window boxes and stole carnations from diners. He drew me cards in crayon and ballpoint on my birthdays and holidays, inscribed with promises to love me all my life. These cards sported likenesses of hilariously deformed walruses and kittens. Our couch had multiple unnoticeable pea stains on it. He made me laugh so hard. But somewhere in the midst of what seemed to me a literally incredible store of good fortune, Wit was secretly pondering my disinterest in bearing children and finding that it disagreed with him. He wanted, as he began informing me just before he passed out from yet another survival agnostic drinking bout, something he called a wife, someone who would be supportive. Because it was then my custom to work as many as 60 hours a week outside the domestic sphere, and because we were already married, I ignored him. And I ignored him because I, in fact, knew when he said such things exactly what he meant, that he was privately envisioning his parents' hallowed suburban partnership, their teenage wedding in the early 70s, his father's extrovert career first in litigation, then in local politics, his mother's charmed trajectory from high school co-ed to homemaker to part-time librarian, the manor outside Stanford and their main escape, his four identically gerbiloid siblings. I ignored him because I could not believe that he wanted any of these so-called comforts, what I, as a child of outsider yuppies, perceived as the wages of white privilege and cronyism for himself even as he was obsessively wanting them, pining after them, numbing his pain at the lack of them with tall boys and processed meat. I ignored him because Wit had read his Zin and listened to his De La Rocha and for a while wrote accomplished opinion pieces denouncing American historical amnesia for an undergrad review. I ignored wit because wit loved complexity and tolerated identity politics because he loved me for my mind, which was complex, and I believed he wanted this complex mind to flourish in the cutthroat milieu into which I, Stella Krakus, had been, for better or worse, launched. But Wit no longer gave a damn about complexity, and the only way he was capable for, of caring for me or my identity was by leaving me in as slow and humiliating a fashion as his pickled brain could devise. It's also possible that I ignored him because I simply did not care enough at this point what he thought or wanted. Living with him sucked so hard. 
And there was something else. It was year 7.5 of our marriage, and I had been at CMART for about six months. A group of previously unseen early fracture book plates had come up at auction, and though German folk drawings are not my specialty, I felt that these represented a body of work the department's collection might usefully absorb. Anyhow, if I were eventually going to be recognized as an authority in early American works on paper, this was kind of the acquisition it was going to make sense for me to make as junior staff. Frederick Liu agreed with me, at least as far as the drawings were concerned. Who knows how he felt about me personally at this stage and negotiated the necessary funds. We had lunch a couple of times, met with a few patrons together, and I got to know his face, how the corners of his eyes tensed during mental processing, how he sometimes liked to laugh in a natural, almost human manner once he was done with business. It was clear to me, too, that even if it might be going too far to say that he saw something in me, as the expression goes, he was relieved or refreshed or mildly enlivened to know that I was the higher maid. I did not bore him as a possible future head of the Department of American Objects, and that deficit of boredom was the kind of deficit into which it did not entirely displease him to gaze. And gaze he did at length. And our discussions began to encompass more general departmental operations, not just the fracture acquisition. Fred sometimes sought my advice. One afternoon, we found ourselves feeding ducks together. It was odd. I began thinking about him on the weekends. I wrote him a note whenever he shared a point of view in a larger meeting to let him know what I thought of what he said. He expressed gratitude. He started coming to see me very briefly each day. He'd hover just beyond my open door. He smiled. I had simultaneously started seeing less and less of wit, although I lived and slept and ate with him. Around wit, I sometimes felt as if I were wrapped in invisible cotton batting, a body condom of some psychic sort. And though I believed that wit was the partner of my life, and though I was gainfully employed, and though I had every material comfort, I was having difficulty seeing my future. One night, at the close of a particularly bitter tussle over the lack of groceries in the house, wit had exclaimed, we're not even having kids, and went on to smash a container of cottage cheese with his fist. I do not remember what this was apropos of, but the phrase stuck with me. It was very odd, not the sort of observation Wit had previously leveled since, as I noted, it was not so much a criticism of me in particular as of the both of us together. And this, if not the dried cheese flecks lingering in local crevices over the months, made it seem like it had come out of someone else's mouth. Not that it wasn't Wit who was saying this line, 
but that he had heard it somewhere else first and was relaying the sentiment to me, who was here a mere secondary interlocutor as far as my husband was concerned, another item of furniture in a residence he'd ceased to cherish. I was lonely. I was also a little ashamed, if I am honest, of Wit, who, as far as I knew, had not read a book that was not a work of sports history in more than 36 months. He was taciturn at receptions and parties, frowning, flushed, impatient. He seemed at times exceedingly reluctant to spend time with me. I watched Frederick Liu. A server at a restaurant one afternoon leaned over after Fred had excused himself and told me, unasked, you know, that man really likes you. Others elsewhere also seemed to indicate that this was indeed the case. And it felt plentiful, this liking, but also totally useless because I was partnered for life and that was what I wanted, to be partnered for life. Not to mention that Fred had presumably had experiences of this nature before and was now having one of these experiences again and that was the long and the short of it that it was cyclical, it happened to him. Fred had trends and this was the extent of his meaning. At least, this was what I fervently believed until one Friday, Fred asked me out for a drink. And I went, knowing in my gut what I was doing and had this drink with him. And I went and had additional drinks with him on subsequent occasions, all the while knowing what I was doing. And we fed more ducks now explicitly feeding ducks together. And then, one early September, when American objects had decamped en masse to a rural Delaware location for a workshop in furniture appraisal and was residing in a series of brick huts at a former foundry turned B&B, &B, I replied to a late night email of Fred's bemoaning his lack of phone charger by appearing in person at the door of his hut, phone charger in hand, and he in turn responded by inviting me into his hut and so I entered and we were in his hut together and had extremely sweet and pleasurable sex which we repeated on the subsequent evening after this all fucking hell broke loose Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants, oh, someone, would you, do you, do you want to give uh, her a microphone? I don't know, for the podcast, no, okay, it'll pick it up. <laughs> John, what's his name? I hate him so much, he's right. But 
do you mean do you mean John Updike? <laughs> So I'm oh, shucks. Well, I think that's a, it's an ambiguous thing that Witt says. He says, we're not even having children. What, even? Why even? It sounds like there's like a, a list of other complaints, too, or other problems. But it seems like Stella doesn't, she's not aware of, of what those might be. But um, I, I would say your, your interpretation seems, um, like that seems plausible to me that someone else said that to him and maybe it's someone he's having an affair with yeah or it could be someone else who knows but Stella doesn't know who that is who said that when you get to the furniture at the end so this this phrase becomes furniture um, and, and, and modern relation to objects mm -hmm. objects take on emotions in modern literature a lot mm -hmm. so I, I just really felt that that was so beautiful, the way the sentence descended into objects. And then I was absolutely sure he was having an affair, and that that was one of the objects in the room that she could curate. I like your, oh. your reading a lot, yeah. Sure, and you know, I, so just to say quickly, like when I when I wrote this novel, I thought a lot about the the realist novel, and I think of the realist novel as being a 19th century French novel, not an American novel. But there are people like Updike who wrote a version of that, and so I'm I'm interested in what that novel offers us, and many of the characters in in this book are sort of social types in a certain way, as much as they are you know, people we might be interested in. So the novel tries to explore different parts of this of this institution of the museum in that way. I mean, I, I guess, you know, this kind of, uh, it probably sounds uh, maybe a little over the top, but I, I think about Balzac, like, I mean, that's the, the, the one realist novelist, basically, and everyone else is just sort of interested in that idea, but. I don't read Balzac. But your sentence structure is so defining of your style. Um, well, that's just Stella. That's not me. That's not how I actually write. She just is like that. So she's I, something else I should have told you. She's an expert in satire and in um, like satirical drawings and prints. Yeah, that's what she's interested in. Did and yeah, but yeah, that's it. That's sort of just her, though. You know, it's not me or my writing style. It's she is a vehicle for that that kind of style. So this is your first novel. Yeah, this is my first like full length, you know, big novel. Um, I I hope so. You know, <laughs> I'm working on that. But thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you like it.
through your voice, and the only other author, and you're very different, but the only other author writing currently is Roxanne Gay. She seems to hold this very authoritative moral position um, in her last book, Hunger, which is going to be the most important book anybody's ever heard for a long, long time. Um, but I kept hearing Mary Gates go through her. She's not a writer I really admire, and I mean, I know you're, again, you're so much bright, more brilliant than Updike, and you're so much more brilliant. I mean, I love her. her. Oh, yeah. I probably think of her a little bit as an influence. Well, it's been several years since I've read one of her books, so I, I probably can't speak too closely, but um, there's something in, in there, her voice and love her stories that are really like, I mean, Bad Behavior is a collection there's, that I like a lot in this. Another one I can't remember the name of right now, but. Um, I don't know, I like the weird sort of fictional situations in her stories. Um, there's certain, like I'm thinking about that story, um, I don't know if it's called Secretary, but it's the story that that movie is, you know, the movie Secretary is based on, and there's this, uh, the narrator's like, standing looking out at cars, and um, there's something about like, static electricity and hair or something, I don't know, it's not, it's kind of far from me, since I've not read it for several years, but um, I don't know if that's like an image. Like I'm always really kind of that when I'm writing and reading, drawn to images, and there's something. Yeah, there's the tension in that. So, so then my second question would be: so that tension. What's what's so seducing about that tension? What's so I like tension. I mean, I'm always drawn to tension, um, whether it's like a. Well, I'm not drawn to awkward tension in life. Like, I, I find it really difficult, you know, to experience, but I'm always putting, or I often to maybe putting characters in like awkward situations or totally tense. Um, I don't know, I think sometimes I'm drawn more to the tension of resolving the tension or to, um, I don't know, just like being in that space. Does it sit out the drawing for you? Or is that wrong? I mean, I don't know that I see my writing necessarily as, as moral. I mean, I think probably some of my morals, my own personal morals come out in my stories or um, you know, the novel that I'm working on right now, but... Um, what is your authority for that? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I write more about vulnerability. Like, I don't know that I think a lot about authority. The story that I read tonight, um, you know, it's a lot about vulnerability. Um, I, I tend to, I mean, I often or I sometimes write about the writing process in a way that's even different than my own. Like, I, when I'm writing, I feel very, usually very connected to the process. But for some reason, I'm always writing about um, narrators who have a really hard time writing, or it's like a very vulnerable place for them. So,
the hearts came quickly and the hearts were more belabored and was like structural stuff more belabored and then the actual filling in came in first. Like, um, like I was, I think I, I was looking on this book for maybe six years or something like that and it went through three or four different drafts. Um, but I, I'm not a big like laborer at writing. Like I just go for walks and decide what will happen, and then I sit down and write it, and then I'll just cut things if it doesn't end up working. So it takes a long time to write a book, but I don't, um, I don't, I don't think about the language in a very rational way when I'm working. Like. something about this but then I got too nervous as I was introducing myself um, but the, the thing that you said someone in the story says something about cities and how we should think about or he <coughs> someone asks what do you want what do you want the city to do or, or what do you want to do with the city um, and I don't know, I thought that that was a, like an interesting way of, I mean, maybe it's a more comment or something like that, but a way of, of thematizing what this, the story was about through that, the, this sort of external comment that's being, that's being made, but that you don't really make hay with afterwards. You let it be there and just kind of yeah, like, yeah. radiate something. I mean, part of it, I think, you know, obviously for that character, there's a lot um, happening in terms of her relationship in the same place that she, she lives in. But I was trying to explore, I guess, this distance between the two characters. And so I kind of, I mean, I think if someone asked me that question, I would feel kind of weird about it. Like, what do you want from this city? You just move for, you know, like you're trying to get something from it or, you know, somehow your relationship to it isn't pure. So I think I, that kind of part of the dialogue just came out of wanting to get into that tension between the two characters or their growing distance. That makes me think of a question previously that you were talking about um, the, the figures in your book being realist and types. And um, I love Balzac. I'm a big Balzac phase. And so I'm excited to read your book thinking about Balzac. And so I was going to ask, um, are the, thinking about cities, are the types of characters in your book, do you feel like they're New York types? Like, is this a realist yes. book about New York City? Yes. Yes, they are. They are people who can only exist within New York. Um, yes. <laughs> I feel like this is with her. Yeah. 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 I mean, of course, it's not, it's not the real, it's a fictional also so I'm always every time I like read it or think about it I'm always dissatisfied with its attempt to point to or represent New York as I actually experience it which is I guess just the, the agony that you that you have to live with after you try to be ambitious at this point. Yeah. 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 Ye
in New York, people will more, oh yeah, I feel more, um, rec they will recognize those types of merchandise in other cities or people in other cities. It's quite possible that they will, yes. yes. They may even, uh, this, you know, uh, think that I have written something about them. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Oh my goodness. I was just going to make a follow-up comment that the, it was such an interesting pairing because Anina's work has so much space in it um, and it just feels very Western to me. Like it's a, new, it's a story about coming to the West being in this space of abeyance, or you know, just waiting for something to, some content to fill a life. And I'm from New York. It, like the the sentence structure of your character's thoughts is so directed in this very New York way, like the labyrinthine social ladder that you have to climb. That's not like a one-way ladder, um, so it was just like a fantastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah. kind of counterintuitive the expressions of the city, even though New York just comes in like in the ducks in Central Park or something, like it's transfigured into something larger, you know, like a sentence structure and a directedness of like dog-eat-dog, -dog, like careerism or something. what you see when you come in and then are doing a lot of other things that can't really be seen or interpreted by the public. Um, so that that is, you know, it, I guess it has become, it's become interesting to me also to try to understand um, why people work in arts administration. It's a particularly, um, can be particularly like fraught kind of profession because you may, uh, you love art and you're around artists all the time, but you, you are not an artist. You're something else. But what that thing is, is very poorly defined. And so you, uh, I have actually done this kind of work myself, and it's, it's a very strange kind of social and um, also just kind of practical task to administrate the, the art. Um, so I mean, just become fascinated with that and with those those people, um, and what they do, what they're trying, what their ambitions are, what their visions are. And I just. Mm -hmm. 
do one more question yeah. from you and then we'll have a sign-in. Yeah. Um, I was having this debate on Facebook with my friends today about why on earth are you worried about the Salvation Army, their false religious impetus, or how all these charities steal money through putting their office staff in between the offices and don't really care about a cancer or whatever charity is arranging itself. And it seems so obvious to me that you would care for the person in your neighborhood getting him up off the ground. And one of my favorite activities is when I get on the 405 at Venice National, I see this encampment that gets right through underneath the freeway. And sometimes it's a, it's a peaceful little community with all their tents set up and the lights and the TVs going. And sometimes somebody, they raise it and you just see this drama happening to this little community forming and supporting each other there. I mean, it's like, it's almost the most important thing I see in the day, actually. So, you're actually tapping these people. I don't know if you're talking to these people or what you're thinking or feeling, but you're, you are pointing to them. And they are tense spot because some people don't even see these people. Um, so could you rip more on what you're doing? Um, well, I'll just say that uh, in some of the stories in Creature and definitely in the novel that I've been working on, I keep kind of going towards um, issues of class and um, sometimes poverty and um, it's not something that I've set out to do and I don't know, you know, that in, the, in that story that I'm doing, it's almost like I, I move towards it um, and it becomes, you know, in this story and it kind of becomes part of things but I'm not necessarily commenting on it a lot. Um, but yeah, I will just say I, I, I don't normally kind of um, start out and think like I'm going to write about class. But it seems to be something I keep sort of moving towards in various ways. So I think in this story, it was just a moving towards it in some way. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lucy. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.